We Americans tend to make independence our primary project, despite the fact that the normal human being's biography begins and ends with dependence. But in the American dream, there simply isn't room for independence. We'd rather invest and promote our own interests rather than that of others. We tend to think our beliefs are more valid than others, our clothing fashions are more normal than other people's. Our beliefs are more valid. Our religious choices are better. Religious affiliation, however, is on the decline, even as personal freedom is on the rise. People would rather have a belief system that's highly individualized, a make-your-own-religion. Individualism is our national anthem. About two years ago, the folks at Google released a database of 5.2 million books published between 1500 and 2008. This database, you, you can search the database for a single word to find out how frequently that, you, that word is used in different eras. The database doesn't tell you how the words are used, it just tells you how frequently they're used at a given time. Still, the, the search results can yield some interesting cultural notes about shifts in culture. For example, somebody typed in the word cocaine into the search engine and found that the word cocaine was surprisingly common uh, during the Victorian era, but then it gradually declined over the years until around 1970 when usage skyrocketed. Another study using the database, a study by Jean Twinge, who wrote a fascinating book called Generation Me. She did a study on uh, individualistic words and found that between 1960 and 2008, individualistic words and phrases overshadowed increasingly communal words and phrases. So, for instance, in that 48-year period, 1960 to 2008, words like personalized, preference, self, unique, I come first, I can do it myself, those kind of words and phrases were used more frequently. Whereas communal words and phrases like community, collective, share, common good, receded in usage. New York Times columnist David Brooks uh, commented on this. These gradual shifts in language reflect tectonic shifts in culture. We are drenched in individualism. And individualism has seeped into the church And individualism is a cancer in the church. While it's true, Christians come to Christ one by one as individuals. God saves people one at a time. Still, the imagery in the New Testament for what we are as the church, the imagery is that of solidarity. We are one body. We are God's house. And the cultural influence of individualism corrupts the instruction of the New Testament. The cultural influence of individualism corrupts the instruction that Paul gives in the passage that we're looking at this morning in 1 Corinthians 12. So in 1 Corinthians 12, we're looking at verses 1 through 11. Verse 1 sets up the topic of the chapter. Paul says, now concerning spiritual gifts... So the people in the church at Corinth had a lot of questions for Paul that they had sent him in a letter. And one of those questions was about spiritual gifts. They wanted to know, are spiritual gifts really 
an evidence of spiritual people. And so they had posed the question to Paul. So in response to their question, verse 1, Paul says, now concerning spiritual gifts, to indicate to them that he is about to answer their question. He uses their term to address their topic. And he goes on to address how members of the body should function as a part of the body for the common good and not merely for individual fulfillment. So read with me, beginning in verse 1 of 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Now, concerning spiritual gifts, brothers, I do not want you to be uninformed. You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols, however you were led. Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed. And no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. Now, there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all and everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. For to one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, and to another the utterance of knowledge according to the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit to another gifts of healing by the one Spirit, to another the working of miracles, to another prophecy, to another the ability to distinguish between spirits, to another various kinds of tongues, to another the interpretation of tongues. All these are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. Well, we'll take note of three points of emphasis in this passage. The first is that God gives gifts. So, number one, God gives gifts. The weight in this passage falls on the giver. So, notice that in verse 4, Paul says, there are gifts and services and activities, but that the gifts are from the same Spirit, and the services are from the same Lord, that is Jesus, and the activities are are from the same God. In other words, the point is that these gifts of God are from God. The Trinity is involved in giving them. So he addresses the Spirit, the Lord, that's Jesus, and God, the Father. The the Trinity gives the gifts. And even before that, in verse 1, Paul begins the discussion now concerning spiritual gifts. And then he addresses the matter of a person's confession. He says, if a person confesses that Jesus is Lord, so if a person thinks of Jesus and considers him, claims him as master, then that person should be considered a Christian. That's what a Christian is. It's someone who thinks of Jesus and thinks of him as master. But if a person denies Jesus, then that's not a legitimate confession. That person is not part of the church. In other words, this whole discussion about spiritual gifts, which takes up this entire chapter as well as the next uh, couple chapters to follow, this discussion has to begin with Jesus as master. He is the head of the church. So we begin by calling him Lord. And then we acknowledge that whatever gifts God gives the church come from God through people who call Jesus Lord. All right, so God is the giver. Jesus is the master. And then look at verse 7. Verse 7, it says, To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit. Well, what does that mean? Two things. 
It means that the Spirit gives these manifestations. They are of him. He gives them. The Spirit is the author of them. They result from him. So they are manifestations of the Spirit. But it also means that these manifestations reveal the Spirit. The character of God is seen in and through these gifts. The Spirit reveals himself in the gifts. So the emphasis of this passage from the beginning is on the one who gives the gifts. Okay, so this, this has some bearing on how we as a church begin our conversations about spiritual gifts. In fact, one of the, one of the core principles of this church, it's, it's written into our bylaws, is that we want to be a God-centered church. We want to be a God-centered church. That's not just something that seems like a good idea to us. We want to be a God-centered church because that's the way the Bible presents God. The Bible begins with God and is constantly pointing back to Him. Romans 11.36 says, For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. That's what 1 Corinthians 12 is saying. Gifts and services and activities in the church are from Him. And they are going to be exercised through him and unto him. So we want to be God-centered. Well, again, what does this mean for our conversation about spiritual gifts? And by the way, if you haven't heard many conversations about spiritual gifts, then let me catch you up to speed on how these conversations usually go. They usually begin with a question. And the question is, what is my spiritual gift Or, what is your spiritual gift? Someone's been told they need to know their spiritual gift. Maybe they've been told the Bible lists 18 or 23 different gifts in a few different passages in the New Testament. And they need to know uh, which gifts they have so that they can use those gifts in the church. And then, the next step is, you need to take a spiritual gifts inventory test. Which is kind of like a personality test. It's just... Kind of a self-assessment of what you like to do. You figure out what suits you best, where you feel most fulfilled, and then you plug into that aspect of life in the church. So in a way, these spiritual gift inventory tests can become just a means of getting programs in the church staffed with people who like doing what they're doing. One pastor wrote, rather honestly in his own opinion, a spiritual gifts inventory is an essential tool in awakening the ministry potential of the congregation. I was just curious what they did before spiritual gifts inventory tests came around in 1979. You know, it's ironic and sad that we, like the Corinthians, tend to take spiritual gifts, which are just supposed to be about us serving the body of Christ, and we turn them into a narrative about me, a story about me. What is my spiritual gift? What am I most passionate about? Where do I feel fulfilled? Now, those questions can actually be helpful in helping us articulate the things that we're wired by God to do. But do you see how those questions can kind of shift the tone of the conversation? What's missing from that that conversation? God is. When we talk about spiritual gifts, rather, we, we should begin by giving thanks to God that he draws people into his plan for revealing his glory through the church. This is what Paul does when he talks about spiritual gifts. This is what Paul does when he talks about his own gifts. 
So in another passage, in Ephesians 3, Paul says this, I became a servant of this gospel by the gift of God's grace given me through the working of his power. Although I am less than the least of all God's people, this grace was given me to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. His intent was that now through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known. You hear how he talks about his gift? That's putting God first. Paul says, God made me to look at Jesus and call him Lord. And then God gave me a role to play in the church. I wasn't good at speaking, but God called me to preach to the Gentiles. And that's how God chose to display his wisdom and his glory. See, to put God at the beginning of the discussion means that we consider how his greatness is being displayed through his gifts. You might ask questions like, how have you seen God use others for the benefit of this church? How has God revealed his character and kindness through others in this body to you? How have you seen his faithfulness through others? For instance, David DeBow has been leading the charge with children's ministry for several years now. It hasn't been his favorite thing to do. I think he would tell you himself he's not much for administrative stuff. Is that right, David? But David has loved the kids, and he has wanted to serve this body by filling a much-needed role. Let me just tell you, God's grace has been very evident in the way that David has served. He has been joyful. He is thoughtful in his prayers and in the lessons he teaches the children. He's humble in his attitude towards others. Just this past month, David handed the responsibility of leading children's ministry over to Josh Herring. But David's work in the church over the past few years has been God's gift to you. He has built up and discipled children in this body. God has used him for the good of this church. God has displayed his kindness to this church through those gifts. That's just one example of how we might take God as the starting point, the same way this passage does. Not by asking, what is my spiritual gift? But rather by observing how God is blessing this church through the service of others. And then giving thanks for that with hearts full of joy. So one way for you to apply this passage this morning is for you to be on the lookout for evidences of God's kindness for revelations of God's character, his faithfulness, his gentleness, the the fruit of the Spirit on display in the life of this church. Be on the lookout for those things. Be aware of the deacons, the servants in the church. Be aware of the ways they're serving and thank them and thank God for using them for the good of this church. It's the way that God intends to display himself through the church. So God gives gifts. There's another major emphasis in this passage, and that is the variety of gifts. So number one is God gives gifts. Number two, God gives a variety of gifts. So there is one giver, but there are many gifts. There is one Lord, one Jesus that we should all call master. That's what a Christian is. But the master has 
many servants that serve him in a variety of ways. God loves variety. As someone has noted, when God sends a blizzard, he makes each snowflake different. We make ice cubes. God makes snowflakes. Doubtless, the church is in some sense like a mighty army, but that doesn't mean that we should think of ourselves as undifferentiated khaki uniforms. No, we should think of ourselves more like an orchestra with each part of the orchestra making its own unique contribution to the overall harmony. So in verses 4 through 6, Paul says there are varieties of gifts. There are varieties of service, and there are varieties of activities. And then what follows in verses 8 through 10 is a list of this variety. It, it, it demonstrates the, the variety that he speaks to, the variety of the ways that God shows his kindness through people. It says, to one is given the utterance of wisdom, to another the utterance of knowledge, and to another faith, gifts of healing, working of miracles, prophecy, ability to distinguish between spirits, various kinds of tongues, the interpretation of tongues. Tongues. Now, my goal this morning is to explain this passage to you, but I'm leaving out some detailed attempts at explaining each of these particular gifts, like tongues. So there's a lot of discussion about tongues and the interpretation of tongues and whether that's still functioning in the church today. What is the exact nature of prophecy or the utterance of wisdom? Those are legitimate questions. We just won't deal with them today because I think that at this point in the paragraph, and I hope I'm not just taking a pass on the difficult things, I think though at this point in the paragraph, Paul is not attempting to explain in detail each of these gifts but rather just to emphasize generally that there is a great variety in the gifts. There's a great variety of ways that God manifests his grace in the life of the church. So this list is inclusive, not exclusive. It's not exhaustive. It's just a sampling of the kinds of ways that God reveals himself through the gifts in the church. All right, now this might be a good point for us to hit the pause button and ask the question, what is a spiritual gift? What is a spiritual gift? Now, you might feel very confident about the answer to that question. But actually, the way that we use the word gift in English tends to obscure the meaning of the word that Paul uses in the Greek, which is charisma. Charisma, which is grace gift or that which results from grace. That's not how we use the word gift. We use the word gift to talk about particular abilities that people have usually. So someone that played on the worship team this morning, or saying we, we might say they are gifted musically. Or a gifted student in school gets into the, the classes for gifted students. You know, they have a special ability. We use the word gift to mean special abilities. But that doesn't seem to be how Paul uses the word gift. So in the letters that Paul writes to the churches, there are four places where Paul lists some charisma, some grace gifts, some of the results of God's grace coming to the church. 
And in each of those lists, he talks about how God has given to the church people who serve in various functions. So Romans 12, one of those passages, Paul talks about the one who leads, the one who teaches, the one who shows mercy, the one who contributes money. These are gifts. Then in our passage this morning, 1 Corinthians 12, besides the list we just read, and at the end of the chapter, he talks about more charisma, and he lists the apostles, prophets, teachers. And then the other passage, Ephesians 4, he talks about Christ having gone into heaven, but left behind for the church some various gifts, and he lists some of those gifts, the apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastor teachers. So in in light of the way that Paul uses the word charisma, I think the best way to think about this word is not as special abilities that someone has. These aren't Christian superpowers. Hey, what's yours? These, These aren't special Christian abilities that people have. These are concrete expressions of God's grace to the church. So when Paul in those lists talks about the charisma, he mentions people, evangelists, servants, prophets. So those are functions, you know, roles that people serve in the church for the good of the body. The charisma granted to each then is not so much a supernatural gift as it is the call of the Spirit to serve the church. A spiritual gift is a concrete expression of God's grace to the church. Spiritual gift is a concrete expression of God's grace to the church. And those concrete expressions of God's grace may come in an endless variety of ways. That's the emphasis in 1 Corinthians 12. And really in all these similar passages, that there is a great variety, a colorful variety, of ways that God's grace may be displayed through the way that the members in the church function towards one another. Well, I can imagine that many of you are still sitting there thinking, okay, but what is my spiritual gift? Where am I supposed to serve? In all this variety, how am I supposed to be a concrete expression of God's grace to Christ's covenant? Well, let's begin with a couple broad categories. So 1 Peter 4, where Peter talks about the gifts, He lists some similar roles in the church. He just mentions two. He says, the one who speaks and the one who serves. And he says that we should do these things as good stewards of God's varied grace. So Peter, unlike Paul, Peter dispenses with the long list, the sampling of gifts, and he just summarizes everything under these two headings, speaking and serving. So if you were to think of the gifts in the church functioning roughly in these two categories, then the speaking gifts would include things like teaching, wisdom, discernment, things that tend to focus on the head, the mind, speaking. And then there are the the serving gifts, the one who serves. These gifts, this category would include things like administrative abilities, hospitality, showing mercy, helping the church with logistics like the deacons did in Acts 6 by serving tables, and even, according to Romans 12, contributing money. These gifts tend to focus on 
the hands. So you have gifts of the head, the speaking gifts, and gifts of the hand, the serving gifts. And yet, in any gift, we must exercise the heart in both love and humility. So you have some categories for service. But again, with all this variety, even with categories, how would you determine the best place for you to contribute? Well, if you want to exercise some ministry of grace that functions as a concrete expression of God's grace to this body, maybe the best place for you to start is not by asking, what is my spiritual gift? But rather by asking, where are there needs in the body? Where are there needs in the body? Because gifts are intended by God to meet needs. So there are a variety of gifts for the body because there are a variety of needs in the body. And it's God's intention that the gifts would meet the needs. There are a variety of gifts because there are an assortment of needs and the gifts are intended by God to meet needs. Varieties of gifts arise out of the variety of needs. Now, we all tend to see different needs. So that is why when it comes to a particular event in the life of the church, some people will end up serving that event by coordinating all the logistics of the particular event. Hands gifts. But others may serve by casting a vision for the event itself. Heads gifts. Still someone else may show up at the event and see those in need of encouragement and encourage them exercising the heart towards that person. Why is the event a success? Because a variety of needs were met by a variety of gifts. Now, we all tend to see different aspects of an event like that. Some of us are prone to see the logistical needs. We see those things and we want to meet them. Others see the need for instruction. Others see relational needs. So the answer to that question, where are their needs, is going to look different from each different person's perspective. But the best way to come to an answer to that question, where are their needs, is by having good relationships in the body. Having good relationships in the body is the best avenue to learning about needs in the body. Knowing where people need encouragement where a roof needs to be repaired or where someone is in need of help with a new baby or needs money to buy groceries. When you are engaged enough in the lives of people in this body to know those kinds of needs, then you'll be in a perfect position to start wielding some spiritual gifts, exercise gifts to meet needs. See, while it's true that we need more people in children's ministry and we need more people in the Karen ministry. We need more people in the nursery. You know, those places are understaffed. They, they need people in each of those places and others that will serve as charisma, concrete expressions of God's grace in those places. So that's true. And those are good entry points and should be not left undone in the life of our church. But beyond that, it's critical for the health of this church that there would be strong relationships 
throughout the body that result in a kind of needs awareness among the body. That we have an intelligence about the needs that exist within the body. Who needs the word of God spoken to them? Who needs to, some, some truth and love? Who needs perhaps to be rebuked or who needs encouragement? We will all see different needs. And our different perspectives that end up seeing different needs will give birth to a variety of gifts operating to meet those needs. Now, importantly, again, in verse 7, Paul notes that to each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. To each is given. Meaning, that every person is necessary in this vision for health. Every person needs to be in operating mode. There are no drones in the body of Christ. We are all useful in this grand vision that God has for his body. This is how unity is achieved, by each member functioning fluidly together, like a tennis player serving the ball. He tosses it up, His eyes align the perfect swing and he sets his body in motion, legs jumping, arms swinging, torso twisting, all resulting in one fluid single motion. To know, for you to know precisely where you might fit into the fluid motion of the church, if that's not already clear to you. Just as a practical point, it will require individual follow-up. The best way to come to a distinct role of service in the body is probably not going to be by you taking a spiritual gifts inventory test. The best way for you to come at needs in the body where you can exercise your gift is going to be by you functioning in the body, knowing where the needs exist. And this may require individual follow-up. You should go to somebody. If this is not clear to you, you should go to somebody and ask, where are their needs? Where might I function in this body for its good? Where can I contribute to the kind of single fluid motion of this body? So God gives gifts, number one, and God gives a variety of gifts, number two. And number three, God gives a variety of gifts for the common good. God gives a variety of gifts for the common good. So verse seven again. And by the way, verse seven is is kind of like a thesis statement for this paragraph. It's kind of the, the hub of all that's going on in this passage. All that's there is compressed into this one statement. To each one is given. There's God gives gifts. To each one, there's the variety of gifts. To each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. There's the intent of the gifts. Another way of reading this might be, to each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit with a view toward profiting. To each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit with a view toward profiting. So that phrase, the common good, or for the benefit of the body as a whole, fits well the context of this entire chapter. So the imagery in the rest of the chapter that we're not reading this morning is that of the human body, the human body working together. So when the foot, the eye, the hand, 
the head, when they're all healthy, working together, fulfilling their role as designed by God to do, then the body itself, the whole thing, an integrated whole, will be healthy. And the whole profits from the individual function of each part for the common good. Now, Paul doesn't make it clear at this point. We have that imagery, but at this point, Paul doesn't make it clear what he means by the common good. So, how are we to find his intent there? You know, we, we don't want to imply meaning to that phrase. We don't want to imagine what the common good might be and then read it in here. So, what does Paul mean by the common good? Best way to interpret scripture is through scripture itself. So, uh, if you turn back to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul indicates for us what he might mean by the common good. So, in the first chapter, he's, he's opening his letter to the Corinthians and he's giving thanks to God for the church. He's giving thanks to God for this church. Corinth, this is a church full of conflict, full of arrogance, full of problems, but Paul graciously giving thanks to God for this church and for the people in it. He says, verse 4, I'll read verses 4 through 9. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you were enriched in him, in all speech and in all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful, by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. What's going on there? Well, I think he's saying that the Corinthian church is not lacking in any gift in regards to this vision that God has for them, which is to sustain them, through Christ, until the day of Christ, the day that Christ returns, God is demonstrating his faithfulness in this. So as Paul thinks of the Corinthian church, he gives thanks that God has given them grace. Specifically, that God has enriched them by giving them every gift that they need in regards to being sustained to the end. In regards to persevering through life in faith until the end, they aren't lacking in a single spiritual gift in regards to that goal. Paul addresses the common good in much the same way in Ephesians 4, which is one of those other passages where he's talking about the gifts and how and why the gifts are given to the church. And in Ephesians 4, verses 15 and 16, after he, he has addressed the gifts, he says, he says, rather speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Gifts are given to achieve the common good, and that is the common good that the body might build itself up in love. We are internally growing towards maturity, internally preparing for the day of Christ. 
It is an internal bodily process, this collective progress toward holiness. And we are dependent on one another for this to happen. Rather than independence and individualism, we strive for interdependence. We strive for interdependence. Interdependence is a mutual reliance on one another. That is what we strive for, a mutual reliance on one another, which is exactly what Paul has in mind again in 1 Corinthians 12. So look at the end of 1 Corinthians 12. Verses 25 through 26, he's come back to the term charisma, to gifts, and he says God has apportioned gifts, verse 25, so that there would be no division in the body, but that its parts should have equal concern for each other. If one part suffers, every part suffers with it. If one part is honored, every part rejoices with it. What happens when one member of Christ's covenant church suffers? Do you suffer with them? What happens when one member rejoices and is honored? Do you rejoice? You want to exercise a spiritual gift? Do you want to? Find someone to suffer with. Find someone to rejoice with. Put off your independent individualism and take on this attitude of interdependence, mutual reliance on one another. One author wrote this. It is the order of grace that Christians are instrumentally dependent upon each other. As we grow, they grow. And as they grow, we grow. Whatever we do for their benefit is for our own. Whatever they do for our benefit is for their own. Thus, it is not only our duty, but our best interest to impart freely of all God's gifts to us for the benefit of our fellow Christians. There must be a communion of prayer and acts and gifts, just as there is a communion of grace. If we refuse this closeness of union to our fellow Christians, we shall suffer doubly. First, for the Holy Spirit will not use us as channels of his grace to them. But second, nor can the effectual working through them Reach us. Nothing but weakness and death can result from such selfish isolation. Don't isolate yourself. You know, you you can come here every Sunday and be isolated. I've talked to people who have chosen particular churches for the sake of anonymity. And even in a smaller church like this one, it is still possible to find an anonymous niche You slip in, you slip out. This passage calls us to avoid such self-islanding. Don't isolate yourself. In regards to our efforts to live like Jesus, the progress in living like Jesus, the progress of each individual in this room, is in many ways bound up in the progress of us all. You may 
feel like you are more spiritually efficient without a bunch of churchy relationships to weigh you down. But if that's the case, your feelings have likely deceived you because it is in the context of communion, it is in the context of Christian relationships that God has designed for you to flourish. Your spiritual muscles will be strongest when you are flexing them to exercise some spiritual gifts in the life of the church. Don't isolate yourself. One final note from this passage. Look at verse 11. Verse 11 says, All these are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. Which echoes an earlier verse that it's the same God who empowers them all. God empowers these gifts towards the common good. As you consider serving as a concrete expression of God's grace in this body, you should be aware of this. Turn immediately to dependent on God who empowers all the gifts. Begin your activity and service in the church on your knees and continue your work in that same posture. Early in his journey, the man named Christian in John Bunyan's timeless allegory, Pilgrim's Progress, stumbles into a swamp of despair. Christian's deserted by his companion, a man named Pliable, suitably enough, and Christian then struggles to continue his journey forward through this quicksand of discouragement, and he has a difficult time, and he is despairing. The only way he's able to finally gain footing on some solid ground is through the uplifting hand of a newfound friend named Help. Bunyan uses this picture to teach us that we need and we will find help along our pilgrimage of faith. But there's another lesson from this incident. And that is that the help may come from us. The help may come from within. And the pilgrim may turn out to be another believer who is in need of our assistance. And we may find that we ourselves are that pilgrim from time to time. We must not make independence our primary project, but rather interdependence. We must extend help and encouragement to those in need and be ready to receive it when we ourselves are in need. And in this way, must be constantly on the lookout for opportunities, for needs, where we can function as concrete expressions of God's grace in the life of this church. We are each necessary for this grand vision that God has in mind for his body. So let's pray together and ask for God's grace to us that we might each function well in this calling he's laid on us. I'll pray, and I'll give you an opportunity also to respond in prayer. If you do pray, please pray briefly and loudly so that we can all engage with you in that prayer. Then in a moment, Keith will come and close our time in prayer. Lord, we are thankful for your kindness. 
Your, your plans are beyond our understanding, and yet we ask you to teach us your way. Strengthen us, because happy is the one whose strength is in you. So for these tasks to, to serve as an expression of your grace to this church, we, we ask for your grace. We need your grace to be displayed by strengthening us, giving us wisdom, calling each of us to specific places of service. I pray that you'd be gracious to our body in this. In Christ's name, amen.